Welcome to our Wednesday night Bible study. We're so glad that you joined with us, all of you here tonight, as well as those who watch us uh, in our, at our campus in Stevens Point, as well as those who watch us all across the internet. Welcome. Uh, we are in the book of Acts, and uh, we are chapter 21, where we are continuing our study of this first century document. This is the history of the church, how they started, what they did, why they did it. Why do we care? Because we want to learn from them so we can do the right thing. These guys changed the world, by the way. So if you have an attitude at all of wanting to change the world, we can learn from the world changers, right? All right, thank you for that big amen. All right, chapter 21. Now, Paul had just uh, met with the, uh, was it Ephesian past guys? Yeah, yeah. Remember, he sailed past them. They made him all walk up to see him. Anyway, and he sat and talked to him. And then he said, "You'll never see me again." And I love you guys. And they cried and they hugged him. And then he went off to the ship. And it says that verse one. Now he says, "After we had torn ourselves away from them, torn themselves." I love the the wording there because they really love these guys and were so sad because they didn't uh, weren't going to see them anymore. Uh, then he says, "After we tore ourselves away from them, we put out to sea." And sailed straight for Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes and from there to Patara. Uh, we found a ship crossing over to Phoenix, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. A lot of detail here. Uh, remember, the reason he's talking in the first person or, or in the sense of we is because Luke, the writer of, of the book of Acts, is now along with them. Uh, it goes from talking about them to now us. That's what we were doing. And when when he starts talking, you look at the great detail now. You know, we saw this island. We were just this. We decided to go this way. Da 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 da. Uh, doesn't really do a whole lot for us, other than to just uh, establish the fact that he really did do this. And this is a first-hand account. So we landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Well, finding disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Uh, through the Spirit, they urged Paul. Not to go. Everybody say, not to go. Urge Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, urge him not to go. Now, this is just a fascinating thing because I I don't get this. um, Because all the indications here now uh, is that the Holy Spirit is warning him. Now, maybe the Spirit was warning what was going to happen, and they urged them to go. It says, through the Spirit, they urged him not to go. I don't quite get it all. All I know is every indication by the Spirit of God, people were speaking. Paul, by his own words, said, man, everywhere I go, the Spirit of God tells me, you're going to get your butt kicked if you go. All right? But he was absolutely determined to go. He said, God put it in his heart to go. So so he's going. And uh, they were warning him, man, the Spirit of God's saying, it's not going to be good. But I says, when our time was up hanging with these guys, we left and continued on our way. All the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city. And there on the beach, we knelt to pray. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and returned home. Again, look at the detail. The disciples, their wives, their children, we went to the beach, we knelt down. I mean, this is, again, first-hand details of this journey. Well, we continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at... I don't know, whatever. 
where we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the Evangelist. I named my son Philip after Philip the Evangelist. Except I gave Phil two L's. And I guess I had a typo. Anyway, um, (laughs) Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. He had four unmarried daughters who did what? (gasps) What? Women? Women prophesying? Women moved by the Holy Spirit speaking out the words of God? Yes, women who prophesied. Now, we do know that Paul really had his issues and did not approve of women having places of authority in the church. But the idea, and then, of course, he says in one place, I don't allow women to talk in the church. I don't know what the context of that is. What does it mean? Does he mean literally in the church service? I have been in churches, uh, obviously overseas, where all the women would sit on one side of the church and all the men would sit on the other side of the church just tradition uh, and they probably did the same kind of things back then there's just this real line delineation between um, men and women and uh, I just know in those services the women were quite chatty <laughs> and would often ask across the aisles to talk to their husbands about one issue or the other what did he say? I don't get you know what. Don't forget your underwear next time, you know, or whatever the deal is. I don't know. So it might have been in that context. I tell women not to talk in church, so we don't know. Again, fill in the blanks. I do know this: that this is an example of women who were under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, who prophesied, who spoke under the anointing of the Holy Spirit, spoke the words of God into the people's lives. Somebody say Amen. amen. All right. So anybody tells you women can't do that, they're ignorant. As can be. Now, after we'd been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. Now, this is a dramatic prophet. Again, what's been happening? Everywhere he goes, the Spirit of God says, ah, 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 ah. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. You're going to get in trouble. And now this prophet comes, and very dramatically, he goes over and he takes Paul's belt and tied his own hands and feet with it. Which must have been quite quite the trick. <laughs> I don't know how one does that. Tie their own hands. Uh, I presume they tied the feet first or he wouldn't have been able to tie his hands. But anyway, uh, so he ties himself up and he says, The Holy Spirit says, In this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. Again, I would interpret that as don't go. Wouldn't you? I mean, if everywhere, if I'm thinking, you know, I'm, I'm going to go, I'm going to go down to Madison. And everywhere I go, somebody prophesies and speaks and people are coming up, showing me all this gloom and gloom. I don't think I'd go. Right? But he kept going. It was the oddest thing. So he says, when we heard this, and obviously this was not the first time they'd heard it, because Paul himself said everybody is telling him this. And then right here we just saw uh, uh, earlier that they had warned him about it uh, when they stopped at uh, uh, Cyprus or whatever the deal was, Tyre. Uh, and now this prophet, and he says, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Wow. And it says, then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? 
I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said the Lord's will be done. They tried desperately to reason with him and pleaded with him not to go. I would love, you know, it would be a great conversation to have with him in heaven, assuming, you know, I'll ever see him. I'll be in the cheap seats. But uh, um, uh, just, just to talk him through this, what, what exactly were you thinking, you know? Because we know you knew it was going to hit the fan if you went. Okay? And it seemed to me that the Holy Spirit was warning him. Uh, but, you know, he, he felt, he said, compelled by the Spirit to go. So, uh, I don't know. I don't, I, I, I don't get it. Anyway, that's what's happening. And, uh, you know, you know, there's a lesson in here somewhere. You know, sometimes preachers, of whom I'm part of the lot, will oftentimes go in a direction that they really feel from the Lord that they need to go. And at times there's these uncomfortable periods where Nobody else quite seems to be on board. And, and that's always an awkward thing. You know, when everybody's coming to you and speaking to you and saying, I don't know, I don't know, I know, I know. But, you know, I don't know. I've certainly experienced that before. It's always been my opinion that it's not a good thing to do. If everybody's telling you not to go a certain direction, you need to reevaluate. Now, there's always a small few who are telling you one thing or the other. You know, they don't really stop by to encourage you in your faith very often, but they feel led to come tell you what an idiot you are, why you shouldn't do this. Those are always wonderful conversations to have. You always get the few, but when everybody's challenging, you say, brother, I don't think we should go this direction. And you'll see some pastors who even acknowledge that, yeah, I know what you're saying, but I just feel we need to go this way. Um, At least there is some precedent to that. Uh, I will say that all of them were right. (laughs) that it did get him in big trouble when he got there Uh, but he certainly knew so I don't know it's just one of those initial or really kind of odd things so anyway after this we got ready and went up to Jerusalem some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Manasseh where we were to stay he was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples when we arrived at Jerusalem The brothers received us warmly. So here they are. They finally get to Jerusalem. Everybody's happy to see them. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James and all the elders were present. Remember, uh, the apostles, Peter, James, John, all the the 12 apostles, uh, whom by and large were still very much involved in the church at Jerusalem, did not run the church in Jerusalem. They gave themselves... To the word of God in prayer. That's what they did. Remember when they first started. We read that where they put in other people. To take care of you know pastor things aren't fair. Some people aren't getting more ministered to. And others aren't and stuff like that. And they said no whoa dudes. Get some spiritual guys to make sure. That everyone's needs are being met. But we're not going to take time for this. We are going to commit ourselves. To the word of God in prayer. And in the beginning the Bible said people would come to Peter. And if there was a situation where, where they needed to deal with stuff in the church. They came to Peter. And Ananias and Sapphira came to Peter. Of course they dropped dead. But uh, 
maybe that's why Peter quit doing it. <laughs> so I'm killing people, man. But, uh, you know, um, these people would all come. But then all of a sudden that disappears and Peter's still there, but they're coming to James, who's the half-brother of Jesus. And James is the one calling the shots and running the day-to-day operations of the church. Uh, it's interesting. But while yet the, uh, pro- the apostles still spent the bulk of their time in the ministry of the word in prayer. It's kind of the model in a very large sense of, of, uh, of kind of what, what we do here. I, I don't really get that involved in the day-to-day operations of the church. Occasionally I stick my, my feet in and, and to the dismay of the guys who have to deal with it. <laughs> They're happier when I don't stick my two cents in for they can give you all the reasons why. But uh, uh, I, I just don't. I try to just really keep myself where I can just minister in the word. I spend the bulk of my time meditating, rolling around in my mind, thinking about the next message. What is God saying? How do I want to speak into people's lives? That's where I spend the bulk of my time. I don't, um, you know, get involved in all the smaller details, although they're big details in, in that it's the major things of the church, the different ministries and stuff in the church. Uh, you know, again, if you've ever come to ask me about something in a ministry, you know I don't know the answer. I just, I just don't. Uh, but all that's by design and purpose. And we get this model from reading this in the book of Acts. So that's what I try to do uh, here. Um, I don't, I really, and it's really a good fit because I, I would, I don't make a very good administrator because I'm terrible with details. You know, you don't want me <laughs> running the details of the church. Uh, you just really don't. Um, if uh, Mary says she's going to follow up with you and, and pray for you if you call and you say, I'm sick and I need somebody to pray. She'll, she'll make sure it happens. If, if you call me and I say, great, yeah, I'll follow up on that. Chances are I'll be doing your funeral in about three weeks because I forgot about you. you know, and, and, and then you'll hate me and say, he's such a jerk. He, he didn't come. He said, you know, I'm just, I'm just telling you, this is, this is me. I just, I will forget. And, uh, and because I'll be off spacing about, about getting in the word or something. But uh, anyway, so. Uh, so they came to James and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had been doing among the Gentiles through his ministry, which is all the stuff we've been reading, all these incredible miracles, people getting saved and building these churches. And these were not little itty bitty dinky churches. These were city changing churches, culture changing churches, region shaking churches. Full of the power of God. And we read how, you know, in Ephesus, they all were freaking out because so many people were getting saved that, you know, uh, there weren't enough people going into the temples and buying idols and they started big riots and stuff. I mean, these guys were freaking out the pagans with, with their effectiveness. Not because they were obnoxious, but just because of the love of God and the love of Christ. And people were giving up on their wicked ways and they were, you know, having big parties and burn all the stuff that was bad in their lives and on and, and on and on and on. So they report all of this to, uh, to James and all the elders, all the guys hanging there in Jerusalem. It says, when they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, you see, brothers, how many thousands of Jews have believed. And all of them are zealous for the law. So right away, he, they point to a problem. Now remember, the last time he was with these guys, it was because of this big fight about how much of the law do we have to obey, Right? And what they basically said to the Gentiles was, you don't have to obey the law. The only thing out of the Old Testament they said we encourage you to do is abstain from food offered to idols. Don't uh, eat or drink blood. 
And uh, I'll take a blood shake, please. And uh, um, <laughs> and what was the other one? Oh, you know, fornication, sexual uh, impurity. Stay away from this stuff. But beyond that, we're not going to put anything else on you. Just, you know, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly and, and, and do the right things. You know, obey the, the word of grace in your heart. So, uh, so they set him free. But it still bugged these guys. They just bugged the snot out of them. I, I cannot stress you strong enough how intensely Jewish people, even Jewish believers, these were believers. Remember he says how many thousands of Jews have believed. Believe, what does that mean? They became born again Christians. They became believers in Jesus. They accepted Jesus as the Messiah. But they still, it just ticked them off that these guys did not have to obey the law. And he says, look how many thousands have believed. And all of them, he says, are zealous for the law. We've got to obey the law. We've got to obey the law. We've got to obey the law. got to obey the law. And it just, just drove them nuts. And wherever Paul would go, these believers, Jewish believers, would come in after Paul left to try and straighten out his ministry. Brother, I've got to straighten out how Paul's left. Now, I've got to straighten out and tell you what, what it's really about. And they would put all this junk on him again, all this legalism. And uh, that's where Paul would write back and say, guys, stop it. You don't have to do this. The strongest one, obviously, is the book of Galatians, where he just goes psycho on these people, yelling at them. Uh, but this was always a problem. So he says, uh, they're all zealous for the law. law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to the customs. Uh, as far as I know, Paul wasn't doing that. Um, you know, he would say that to the Gentiles. Look, you don't have to do all this stuff. And I'm sure, you know, if I would have been one of the Jewish believers and everybody, they're learning this freedom, I'd have probably bought into the freedom. Great, we don't have to do all this stuff. Well, it created quite the stir. Remember, the main reason Judaism rejected Christianity was not because they could not grasp that Jesus was the Messiah. We always hear that. Well, they rejected Jesus. They just couldn't accept Jesus as the Messiah. Not true. Not true, but the tens of thousands they accepted Jesus as the Messiah. The reason they rejected Christianity in the long run, it ticked them off. That we were saying you could know God without obeying the Old Testament laws. And they were so tied into the legalism, it eventually drug them under. And they wanted to be more identified with that than the freedom that they had in Jesus. That's why they eventually totally separated. And then you started hearing of no Jews as Christians, but just... Gentiles who had become Christians. Um, anyway, uh, they said in verse 22, what are we going to do? What shall we do? What shall we do? What are we going to do? They will certainly hear that you've come. <laughs> Remember, they're not talking about pagans. He said thousands of Jews have believed. And if they hear you're in town, holy stinking cow. He knew they couldn't stand them. He knew they were irritated as they could at Paul preaching this liberty to people. Now, you got to wonder about James and these guys. I mean, come on, you guys. You know, get a clue. But they never did take a real firm stand among the Jewish believers along these lines. They had to, at some level, continue to allow this to continue, this thinking to continue. They're the leaders of the church, right? There's thousands of Jews who believe, and they're all zealous for the law and are mad at Paul. What were these guys saying about it? Apparently not a whole lot. You remember in, when, in Galatians what Paul wrote and he was ticked off at Peter. Because remember Peter came along and he was dancing into this ridiculous tune. And he rebuked Peter to his face in front of everybody. This was the thinking of the guys at Jerusalem. They just, 
they were preaching Jesus and stuff, but when it came to this idea of freedom in Christ, separate from the legalism of the Old Testament law, they just couldn't get past it. So when they're freaking out, though, they certainly hear that you've come, what, what do we tell them? Uh, so do, uh, no, no, he says, so do what we tell you. So they, they want to cover the situation. They want to help fix the thing. He says, there are four men with us who have made a vow. These guys would make these uh, Jewish vows and stuff. Again, all according to the laws of Moses. And uh, there are all kinds of different things that they do. These particular guys would, you know, shave their heads and go through these rituals and, and whatnot. So he says, look, here, everybody's going to be ticked when they hear you come. So, so this is what we're going to do. We've got four guys here who've made a vow. We assume they were believers, right? They were with these guys. So take these men, join in their purification rites, and all this religious cleansing they have to do, which again, what was Jesus always challenging these guys? You're more concerned about the external purity than the internal purity. They were so hung up on being kosher on the outside, but yet they were evil and wicked in sin on the inside. But still, even here as believers, they're still obsessed with this external cleansing and purification. So join these guys, get in on the deal, you know, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. I don't know how much it costs to shave a head, but ask them to pay for it. Uh, Then everybody will know that there's no truth to these reports about you, but that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. Um, Which really now, you you got to kind of get on Paul a little bit, because Paul, based on his writings, did not, he moved on. I mean, at some point, he just moved on. He said, every day is the same. There is no holier days than others. There's no special Sabbath day. All these different things that he wrote in his writings. He could have really challenged these guys at this point, but he didn't. He says, as for the Gentile believers, that's all of us, uh, we have written to them about our decision that they should abstain from food sacrificed to idols and from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, which is the same thing as blood. And from sexual immorality. So he said, we already made our decision about those guys. We're, we're cool with them, they said. We're cool. But the, but the Jews, we've got we to fix this thing with the Jews. So the next day, Paul took the man and purified himself along with them. Got all clean and shiny. And then went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end. And the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. Well, they stood up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Men of Israel, help us! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against our people and our law and this place. They interpreted that his freedom of the gospel was an insult to their people and to their culture and to the temple, the holy temple of God. Of course, truth is, they were teaching that God doesn't live in temples. He lives in human temples. God doesn't hang out in the, you know, that's why we don't make a big, big super deal about Churches, I know some churches get real technical about what's exactly in the church and how you have to act in the church. You have to show reverence in the church. You don't walk in the church. The church walks in the building. That's really what happens, okay? We're the church. Jesus isn't living on a box somewhere up on the altar. We don't even have one of those altar things up here. Why? It's not there. This is the altar. And people from more traditional churches come in and go, the first thing they say, well, where's your altar? It's right here. It's talking to you. I'm a walking altar. But don't genuflect. I'm just a walking altar. All right? All right. Anyway, so they stood. They freaked out. This is a man who teaches everyone against our people, against the law in this place. And besides, he's brought Greeks into the temple area and defiled this holy place, which he did not do. 
Or they're exaggerating now, which is the case when people start debating and arguing. Things tend to get exaggerated. I've been known to do that myself at times. It's kind of, kind of, a, kind of a normal human thing. Anyway, what had happened is they had previously, previously seen Trophimus, uh, the Ephesian, in the city with Paul. And then assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple area. You know, which he hadn't. But jump to conclusions, which is, again, things people are very quick to do. Um, anyway, the whole city was aroused, and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple, and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him. <laughs> oh, my gosh. They're trying to kill him. News reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. Well, when the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul, whom they were trying to kill. They weren't just trying to beat him, they were trying to kill him. Well, the commander came up and arrested him, Paul, and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who, was, who he was and what he had done. Well, some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander couldn't get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great, he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd, kept, uh, the crowd that followed him kept shouting, Away with him! Away with him! Away! How, who does that remind you of? Same guys who yelled, Crucify him! Crucify him! Crucify him! Now, the thing that's kind of disturbing here is... Were some of these guys believers? It doesn't say. It does say that thousands of Jews had become believers and said, but some of these guys are going to freak when they see you. And would Christians have got caught up into this? Are Christians capable of such behavior? <laughs> yep, we sure are. Sad. It's sad. We shouldn't. But sometimes it doesn't say. We don't know. Certainly there are no believers running to his defense. We do know that. And based on the atmosphere in Jerusalem at that time and how many people had come to Christ, it's highly unlikely that there were not believers in Jesus who were there. At a minimum, they said nothing. Most likely they got caught up in the same insanity because they were so trying to defend Judaism. Well, as the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? And he said this in Greek. Paul was a multilingual, very educated man. So he speaks to him in Greek. Hey, can I say something to you? And the guy says, you speak Greek? Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the desert some time ago? Paul said, no, no, I'm, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. I mean, this is a pretty fancy city. And please let me speak to the people. Well, having received the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. And when they were silent, he heard them. He heard him speak to them in Aramaic, uh, or possibly Hebrew. There was some debate on whatever, but it was, it was the language all the Jews understood. And he says to them, "Brothers and fathers, listen now to my defense." And when they heard him speak to them in Aramaic, they became quiet again, very uh, fluent in, in, in the language here. Then Paul said, "I'm a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia." But brought up under this city, under Gamaliel, who was a great teacher, uh, historically, you can read about Gamaliel. 
I was thoroughly trained in the law of our fathers and was just as zealous for God as any of you are today. I persecuted the followers of this way to their death. Remember, they kept referring to them as the people of the way, of the way, of the way. And I mentioned to you last couple of weeks, you know, that um, eventually we're going to see where, what they get called. Actually, we had passed that already, and I forgot. I was looking today saying, where is that? We passed it. It was back in chapter 11 in Antioch where they started calling them Christians. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. Now, we know historically that's the name that stuck, that, that stuck. But they still hadn't taken over. They were still referred to as the way. And you'll hear this over and over again as, as we've been reading and will continue to read. Uh, the, the Christian name, which started in Antioch, still hadn't taken over uh, all over the world yet. So anyway, I, I followed the persecutors of this way, talking about Christians, to their death. Arresting both men and women and throwing them into prison. As also the high priest and all the council can testify. You guys know, I was one of your own. I was there. I was leading the charge against all these people. I even obtained letters from them to their brothers in Damascus and went there to bring these people as prisoners to Jerusalem to be punished. About noon, as I came near Damascus, suddenly a bright light from heaven flashed around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice say to me, Saul, Saul, which was his name before he became Paul. Why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? I asked. I am Jesus of Nazareth whom you are persecuting. Um, uh, my, uh, he replied, he says, My companions saw the light, but they did not understand the voice of him who was speaking to me. Now, now, now check it out. Here he invokes the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And they kept listening. They didn't get upset. Again, they were comfortable with this. A lot of them had become believers in Jesus. You would have thought if they just opposed Christianity, if they supposed Jesus is the Messiah, they would have been screaming and hollering, no, 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 keep talking. Jesus, yep, 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 go on. So he says, uh, everybody heard this voice. I didn't, I didn't know what was going on. And he said, he said to the voice, he said, what shall I do, Lord? Get up, the Lord said, and go into, into Damascus. There you will be told all that you have been assigned to do. Well, my companions led me by the hand into Damascus because the brilliance of the light had blinded me. A man named Ananias came to see me. He was a devout observer of the law and highly respected by all the Jews living there. Why is he underlining that? Because they just didn't think very highly of anybody who wasn't Jewish. I mean, you, you talk about segregation. You talk about racism. I mean, these conservative at this time in their history, Jews would have nothing to do with anybody. They wouldn't even eat with anybody. Just to go into someone's house that wasn't a Jew was, was verboten. I mean, it was just outrageous that they would do such a thing. So he had to keep referring to these key players as Jews, good standing, respected by all the Jews. Oh, okay, okay, okay. So he stood by me and said, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very moment, I was able to see. Then he said, the God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to, and to see the righteous one and to hear words from his mouth. I should have checked on this earlier. Where's this back? Where did this all happen? Saul Damascus. Chapter 9. Is it chapter 9? No, no, no. Saul's conversion. Here we go. Yeah, that's chapter 9. Ah, check it out. 
I thought, I thought. I came unprepared in this one state instance, but check this out. In chapter 9, verse, uh, verse 17, when, where this was recorded, Ananias went to the house and entered it where, where, where Saul was. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus appeared to you on the road, told me to come do this. Well, when Paul is telling the story, he says in verse 14, we just read it, the God of our fathers. See, even in this case, why? He's really trying to underscore the Jewish thing with these guys. That's not what, if the first account is correct, he didn't say the God of our fathers told us. He said the Lord Jesus told me this. But, again, he's trying to uh, get along with these guys. The God of our fathers has chosen you to know his will and to see the righteous one, referring of the Messiah, and to hear the words from his mouth. You will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now, what are you waiting for? Get up, be baptized, and wash your sins away calling on his name when I returned to Jerusalem I was praying at the temple and fell into a trance and saw the Lord speaking which by the way this isn't recorded um, earlier on we never saw this but he's giving us more detail Uh, when he first came to Jerusalem he he said quick uh, leave Jerusalem immediately because they will not accept your testimony about me Lord I replied these men know that I went from synagogue to another prison Went from one synagogue to another to imprison and beat those who believe in you. When the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I stood there giving my approval and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Now check it out. All this time, he's making reference to Jesus, the Messiah, mentioned Jesus by name a little bit earlier. They sat quietly, listen to all this, until he gets to this phrase. Then the Lord said to me, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. And what's the next verse say? The crowd listened to Paul until he said this. Until he said this. You went to non-Jews. Then they raised their voices and shouted, Rid the earth of him. He's not fit to live. <laughs> These boys had some issues. Talk about Jesus. Talk about the Bible. They were cool and all that. But you went to people who weren't circumcised. Kill him. Wow. Amazing. They were, I know this is going to sound really crude, but it's just the reality. These guys were so legalistic. They were more concerned of the condition of a guy's wiener than his heart. It's true. If they weren't circumcised, then they just had a cow. God, do something in your heart. Yeah, that's fine. We don't care about that. But where, where, where's your wiener at? <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust in the air, these guys were rather dramatic, the commander ordered Paul to be taken into the barracks. He directed that he be flogged and questioned in order to find out why the people were shouting at him like this. There had to be a reason. This still made no sense. Go beat him. See, we're going to find out what this is all about. It says, as they stretched him out to flog him, Paul said to the centurion standing there, you know, brother, go ahead and just hit me. I don't have a problem. I'm just suffer for Jesus quietly. You know, I'm going to be very humble about all this. Is that what he says? He says, wait, 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 wait a minute. Is it legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't even been found guilty? Well, when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. What are you going to do? He said, this man is a Roman citizen. So Paul had no problem standing his ground and claiming his rights 
as a human being. In this case, political rights. He had, he was as a Roman citizen. Remember, this is the same Paul that after they beat him in the one place and then they were going to let him go the next day, he said, I ain't going anywhere. You tell him to come down there and ask me to leave. Remember that? I'm telling you, this is a picture of Christianity you don't see. We think Christianity always means just, just letting them beat the snot out of you. Just go ahead and just take, just brother, the Christian thing to do is just put up with, you know, no. If that's the Christian thing to do, then Paul wasn't much of a Christian. And I beg to differ. He absolutely stood up when he knew it was right to stand up and make his points. No. He wasn't afraid of an argument. And to the life, for the life of me, I, we're going to talk about this at our men's conference we, coming up uh, next month, you know, talking about. Uh, you know, who we are as men and what is the role of men. And, and one of the roles of men in, in church doesn't mean that you become this emasculated, girly man, never allowed to say anything, never allowed to, you know, we should never argue and never. These guys were arguing all the time. All the time. Now, you can argue as a Christian and not get nasty and mean, but just arguing and debating stuff. You know, there's people, the minute you have any kind of debate and you start wrestling stuff. You know, the Bible says, iron sharpens iron. We like to quote that scripture until iron starts hitting you. You go, ah! Don't do that, bro. It's not very Christian. I don't do that. Your iron's very cold. Can it be plastic? No, it's iron. How does iron sharpen iron? It rubs against it. Brother, you just rubbed me the wrong way. Praise God, that's scriptural. <laughs> what happens when iron rubs iron? Sparks fly. Brother, you're causing all kinds of sparks. Praise God, that's very scriptural. <laughs> this idea that we can't debate stuff and wrestle stuff and, and, and just get in the trenches and, you know, banter back and forth. Sometimes it gets intense. The Bible says when, the, when they were arguing about whether or not Jews, uh, Christians could serve God without becoming Jews, the Bible said they had no small dispute. In English that means they had a big fat stinking fight. I presume no small dispute. There's a small dispute and there's one that's not a small dispute. It would mean a big dispute. Anyway, this, this picture is just pure nonsense. I mean, here's Paul. You know, he didn't just sit there and let him beat on him. Saying, well, Paul, don't make any waves. Just, 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 just be a believer. He said, well, 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 wait a minute. You don't have the legal right to do what you're about to do. Well, the guy goes and tells everybody, man, this guy's a Roman citizen. What are you going to do? Verse 27, the commander went to Paul and asked, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. Well, then the commander said, man, I had to pay a big price for my citizenship. Paul said, but I was born a citizen. I didn't have to pay jack squat for this. And those who were about to question him withdrew immediately. As soon as they found out that he was a natural born citizen of Rome. Whoa, 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 whoa. Everybody backed off. You do not punish a Roman citizen without just cause, without trial, without him being sentenced. They would do that to everybody else. But not to these guys. So anyway, they withdrew immediately and the commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he put Paul, a Roman citizen, in change. Now he's freaking out because you just don't do that. Well, the next day, since the commander wanted to find out exactly why Paul was being accused by the Jews, he released him and ordered the chief priest and all the Sanhedrin to assemble. Then he brought Paul and had him stand before them. Who? Before all the chief priests in the Sanhedrin. These guys came in, made the case. And they brought in Paul. And Paul... 
Verse 1, chapter 23. Now remember these chapters and numbers are all added later. He just keeps writing here. Paul looked straight at the Sanhedrin and said, My brothers, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. This was his opening lines. Well, right at his opening line, it says, At this the high priest Ananias ordered those standing near Paul to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, You know, that's okay. I don't have a problem with that. I really love Jesus, and I don't want to see any sparks fly, and I don't want iron to rub against iron, so I'm I'm I'm, I'm sorry. (laughs) Different translation. Let me show you what it really said. This is Paul, a born-again man, believer in Jesus Christ, passionate above anything I think any of us will ever begin to relate to. Loving God as intensely as he can. Serving Jesus Christ with every measure of energy a man or a woman could ever display. And he says to him, this guy, after he smacks him in the mouth, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. You sit there to judge me according to the law, yet you yourself violate the law by commanding that I be struck. Paul is a smart guy. He knows the law. He's highly educated. He knew the Roman law. He knew the Jewish law. What he just did was in violation of Jewish law. And he says, "You God's going to smack you upside the head. But now check this out. Another lesson here. Those who were standing near Paul said, Dude, you dare to insult God's high priest? And then Paul replied, Brothers, I did not realize that he was the high priest. For it is written, do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. Do not speak evil about the ruler of your people. And immediately he apologized. Immediately he apologized. He knew this guy was in violation of the law. And under normal circumstances, he had no problem standing up to him and saying, God's going to smack you, you big fat stinking jerk. But as soon as he found out that he was the head spiritual leader of that group, he stopped. So I'm, I'm, I'm sorry, I, I didn't realize that. Even though he was perfectly... Who was right, Paul or the high priest? Paul. And what does Paul do? He apologizes. Why? Because the Bible says, do not speak evil of the leader of my people. It's called Respect. Spiritual respect for people in authority. And whether or not you want to respect me or not is your own issue. I'm just telling you, the Bible teaches that we are to respect those who are our spiritual leaders. We show them particular deference and respect. It is as biblical as it could be. And if I wasn't your pastor, I'd still tell you the same thing. And if I'm not your pastor and you happen to be visiting from here from somewhere else, you need to have that kind of respect to your pastor. Why? He's wrong. Our pastor's wrong. He doesn't do everything right. He doesn't, he's not like you, Pastor Mark. He doesn't do everything perfectly. <laughs> what? Well, I don't care if he does everything perfectly. And I don't care. Maybe he messes up. Maybe he's not the smartest guy in the world. Maybe he's not the most spiritual guy in the world. Maybe he doesn't do... Maybe he actually does some things that are not quite right. We're not talking murder and adultery here. We're just talking he broke the the, the, the law there. The rules, you can't smack somebody. And he broke the law that he's supposed to defend. But when he found out he was a spiritual leader, he says, "I, I am sorry. 
that I spoke disrespectfully. Boy, if we ever got that in the church today. Because the truth of the matter is the minute someone has any suspicion or ground of suspicion about some spiritual status that the pastor doesn't have, they have no problem speaking critically, questioning, being problematic, challenging, confronting face to face. You know, I'm not saying this is to protect me. You want to come after me, bring it on. I can handle it. I'm saying this for your sake. Then these same people wonder why God isn't blessing them and why aren't they succeeding in life. Yeah, I tell you what, you, you start attacking spiritual leadership in the wrong attitude and not in an attitude of humility and tenderness with respect. If not for the man, at least for the office that God has put him in, you're in a bad place. And, and make no mistake, God has always defended those of whom he's put in a place of authority. Even when some of them were big, fat, stinking morons. Read David and Saul. You ever read David and Saul? Man, we should just do a study on that. It's, it's unbelievable. I think we will do a study of that when I get back of the next this because this is amazing stuff. David had every right in the natural to kill Saul. God had even sent a prophet and anointed him as king. But he wouldn't touch Saul as long as he was alive. He said, I will not touch God's anointed. God's anointed, what are you talking about? He's, he's a heathen, he's, he's disobeying God, he's, he's, he's involved in sorceries. But David said, I will not touch him. Several occasions. We will read. I'm going to read this when we get back. I'm saying this because next Wednesday we have off. Next Wednesday is the kids' whatever, fine arts festival, and they take over the joint and go nuts, and God bless them, and it's great, and it's fabulous. So we, we get run out for the day. So we got we got to skip next week and come back the following week. But I want to start with that. I want to go, and I just want you to read some of this stuff. It is amazing. He had opportunities to kill Saul dead to right when Saul was chasing him trying to kill him at least I'm not trying to kill you but Saul was trying to kill him and he'd be sleeping and David would stumble on him and think ooh here he is I could kill him and all his men said oh for crying out loud David just kill him let me kill him please can I kill him he says don't you dare don't you dare This is God's anointed. God's anointed. He's trying to kill us. He's disobeying God. But he's still such huge respect. And the killer, and I'll read this to you when we come back. The the killers, when, when Saul was in his final battle, and he's wounded, and he's on the ground, he yells at a guy going by, would you please kill me? Don't let me fall into enemy's hands. And the guy comes over and either runs Saul through or assists him to to fall on his own sword. And he comes to David. He says, guess what? Guess what? You're free, man. Saul is dead. It's over. You're the king. He says, how do you know Saul is dead? Well, because I went by and he was in the battle and he was bleeding. And he said, would you please help me die? And so I I held the sword and, and, and got him killed. And David said, you did what? 
You weren't afraid to touch God's anointed? Dude, David, I thought I did you a big favor here. And David told his men, take this guy and kill him. And they killed him. That was a bad day for that boy. (laughs) This was the kind of attitude that God looked at David and said, this is a guy after my own heart. This is a guy who gets it. This is a guy who understands spiritual authority, spiritual respect. Even when a guy was as bad as this guy, still showing him deference in a position that God had not removed him yet from and treating him with respect. Whoa! An amazing thing. And that's what you saw Paul do here just now. However, if he had not been the high priest, he still would have said, God's going to smack you, you jerk. And uh, it wasn't afraid to speak up for himself. Okay, that's good for now. Let's have our ushers come and we will take our uh, Wednesday night offering. Um, So why do you take offerings on Wednesday night? Um, A lot of people actually, this is their Sunday morning service. This is when they come and they actually, uh, this is where they give their tithes and offerings to the Lord. Uh, because either they work on Wednesday nights or, or Sundays and they can't come. Or some of you, quite frankly, I know, you tell me, you know, you don't even come on Sundays. You'd, pr- you'd prefer to come on Wednesdays. I have no problem with that in any way, shape, or form. That's fine with me. At least you're coming. Praise God. You know, they just like the study of the word and the intensity of, of what we're doing uh, as opposed to just the short worship and the short sermon. They'd rather have the, the mini worship and the long sermon, which is absolutely fine. Anyway. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your gifts. God, help us. Help us to walk like men and women of integrity, of character, to have a clue, to get a piece of some of this stuff, Lord God, so we can learn by their example, so that we can walk and act and talk in the way that will bring you the greatest glory and honor, so that you can abundantly bless our lives. God, use us for the advancement of your kingdom. Bless this money, Lord. Thank you for those who continue to, to uh, support this church uh, in a rich way, we pray in Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen.